Remember we were talking about golf and you were bad-mouthing it, and then we got into tennis and and Alyssa Milano and you were bad-mouthing that. Now I find out you were number, you were. <laughs> I am the, a lifelong tennis fan, and I, I mean, will tell you this: my uh, for six years of my life, I was a ball boy in. Ca- I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, home to the USTA. Oh, for the Nationals. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Andy. This and now is you're a, a ball. And now you're a ball buster. I'm a ball you go. Ball. That's right. Thank you, Governor. Very clever. <laughs> well done. All right, Jordan, listen, I wondered if you had any, when you were a kid, and even now, do you have any family traditions that you that you do on the 4th? I'll tell you a little bit about mine, but what, what did you do? Well, I think growing up as a kid, we would always go up to Mason, Michigan, where my cousins were from, and there would be a little small town uh, parade that we would attend. Uh, then we would go to the, the field where there was fireworks, off at a baseball field, or if we were back in Kalamazoo. Uh, then we go to a minor league ball game. Uh, now that I've moved to New York, it tends to be find find the friend with outdoor space, go there, grill, and then watch fireworks, which is actually fun. If you find any kind of rooftop space in New York, you can see fireworks at night uh, all across the city. And uh, if you're high up enough, you can look and you can see some fireworks in Jersey, some down at Coney Island, some in Manhattan, and some up in Queens. So it's you really get surrounded by by fireworks. So that's yeah, you, that's, you my, that's my goal this year. How about them? you? Do you have a little whiskey when you're watching them? Man, I have whiskey when I'm watching them. I have whiskey before watching them. It's it's what the founding fathers would have wanted. In fact, I think they enacted most laws with a good pint of whiskey in them. You know, uh, for me, you know, well, first of all, they have this thing out pretty close to my home, uh, but they're not doing it on the 4th of July. They're doing it on Labor Day. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun. And we sit on, you know, the porch of one of my friends and like we could get hit by the stuff as it comes down from the sky. But when I was a kid, I had a paper route. And I used to love when the 4th of July was on Saturdays because Sunday morning I'd be up early to deliver the papers and there would be all these unspent firecrackers sitting there on the sidewalk and in the streets. It was fantastic. I mean, I said at that point, the 4th of July should be every Saturday. That's just the way it ought to be. And it was a lot of fun. And with parades, you know, this is really crazy. I wish I could add up all the parades that I marched in on the 4th of July over the 30 years I held public office. I, Jordan, I'm not kidding you. If I were to tell you, it's probably somewhere around, I bet, 500 over the period of time. And I walked in all of them, never rode in a car. And I would go from one city to the other community, the other community, the other community. You know, you'd like walk like 20 miles on the 4th of July. And uh, no more because no one wants me in their parade anymore. So, you know, you know what that's like. So I'm impressed you did the walk. I do think I, I often think if you have a convertible in there, it's the nice, easy ride. It gets hot. But no, walk with the people. Yeah, you get to touch a lot of hands. And it's like what was so great about it is if you weren't around all the time, you could on one day, on one day, you could touch all these different communities. And they're like, yeah, he's our guy. Yep. Yeah. We look at him. Look how hard he's working. So the real key for people today is if you don't want to work that hard, just show up on the 4th of July and walk in all the parades and then have a car following you. You see, if you have the car following you, then they go, look at him. He got out of his car. What a guy. You know? oh, so, so, so the car is a decoy. The car is oh, yeah, there to essentially absolutely. show you what, what yeah, you have abs- not chosen. It's absolutely a decoy. So Anyway, we've got a great guest. And, oh, we got uh, ex- I want to get your thoughts on something. I know we're talking about 4th sure. of July. We're talking about America stuff. But I feel like we have to address, uh, I will say, big news this week. And sort of in, in my sphere of folks and friends, their, their, their patriotism has been shaken. This was uh, an overturning of Roe v. Wade. I know for a lot of people... Are, are heartbroken. They feel like the rug has been pulled out. They feel like rights have been taken away. And uh, it has been hard to keep some of that patriotic spirit. I think there's there's a look towards the Supreme Court as a court that, frankly, has a lot of people on board who weren't, weren't put on board with a majority of, uh, with presidents who got the majority popu- uh, uh, popular vote. Right. And I think there's a, there's a lot of people here who are frustrated <laughs> with this country, who are frustrated with this American spirit. And yeah, uh, yeah, I, don't know. I would, ju- I, I, I would I, say it's obviously, uh, you know, as tough an issue as we could ever discuss. And the one thing that I, I would say, Jordan, is 
as in course now this is sent back to the states and some states will will go forward others will not um i am very disappointed that they didn't have any exemption for incest and uh and on for rape that to me doesn't make any sense uh but at the end i think if if they if people are really serious about this they're going to have to dedicate a significant amount of resources to counseling a significant amount of resources to uh to uh, to women and also a significant amount of resources for these babies when they're born you just can't have a ruling like this and just you know and do nothing in a in a positive way but i would i would say as frustrated as people are and they've been this way on both sides the one thing i do hope is that maybe people can uh, respect other people's views on this and that you know i people are telling me on social media it's like you don't agree with me i hate you and it comes at a time when the country's so divided that uh, I mean, there's great concerns about where we're going. We have to see how this settles down over time. But I appreciate I, your I, point I, of view. And I, I hear you on that, but I, I, I do think a lot of people see this as infringing on other people's points of view. I think if you are the kind of person who doesn't want an abortion or that goes against your religion, that's fine. Don't have an abortion. Uh, eat to each his own. I think there's a lot of people who feel like. This is an example of people not respecting other people's opinions and feelings and respecting the choices they have to make. And yeah. it's sort of a, an act of disrespect towards half of the population and the, that population, the people that they love. Yeah, I, I, it's like I say, there's not a there's not a tougher issue, you know, in our culture, in our society than this one. And, um, you know, it's it's a debate that's going to go on across this country for a long period of time. Mm. Yeah. It's a bummer, I gotta say. I, I do feel like I look out and I talk to my wife. I talk to, we, we have also have a lot of friends who are in the process of trying to conceive. And, and then there's a lot of confusion right now of what that will mean. I don't, I don't think a lot of people have thought through what this type of action will have with other folks who are in the throes of um, attempting to become parents and the difficulties with that. And yeah. I don't know, I think it's a scary time for America. And I, I wanna stay optimistic and I understand that it's a divisive issue but it does feel like one that is is a disrespectful act towards uh, towards the most vulnerable. I hear you. Well, Governor, it's always good to touch base with you about all of these things. Well, no, just 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 one other thing. Yes, you know there are people who who don't agree with you who have who feel just as strongly as you do about the need to protect the unborn. I mean, it, you just have to realize that on on both sides of this issue, on both sides of this issue, there are there are. There's such intensity and such deep feelings that I, I, I know that there are people, look, I know what people are thinking about. My hope is, is that this can be worked out in the states. My hope is that it can be worked out in a rational way. And, um, but look, I just don't lose, I don't lose faith in our country when decisions get made out of a Supreme Court that I may not want to agree with. You know, I understand. I understand yeah. what you're saying, but it's a it's a process, just like the process unfolded. What was it, 40, 50 years ago? Um, we we just got to. It's going to the states now. They're going to have to figure out what they want to do. And but I I hear what you're saying, man. It's just you, yeah. as tough as it is. As tough as it, it is, can I, be. I think for me, I I do think it is. For me, it is a consistent loss of faith in 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 trust with these institutions. Right. It does feel like an activist court to me. It feels like an illegitimate court. Feels like you have people on that court who were don't deserve to be in there. There's a seat that's been stolen, and hell, there's a Supreme Court justice who has a wife who's trying to overthrow the government. And so I do think I'm looking at this, and then they're they're preaching, let's respect each other. Let's uh, they won't let New York handle states' rights. They won't let New York handle our own gun issue, but now they want states' rights to be the issue for uh, uh, the unborn. And I think that's that's infuriating to me. And I I keep I keep telling myself trust in this system, but it feels like this system is is losing its response to what the American public wants and how it should work. And it's just becoming a politicized arm that's pushing us further and further apart. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong, Governor. Well, look, Jordan, there were decisions made, for example, you know, a, a, a what is it, a football coach who wants to pray before a football game. And the court said, no, you can't pray. I mean, you know, I, I could tell you, I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, you know, but I'm not going to lose faith because, you know, because the court uh, made a ruling that I didn't happen to agree with. I mean, I haven't been through all the rulings of the courts, 
you know, that I would like or really not like. Uh, but I would just tell you, it's it's the system we have, and the people that are on there are supposed to do. Are I think their their intent is to try to do the best to, to take a look at what the constitutional issues are here, and it's not really about um, you know a poll or anything like that. It's about them trying to decide what's the right thing to do on a constitutional basis. Again, I would just want to go back to this and say, yeah, this one is really, really tough. And this one is really, really hard. And there's going to be a lot of really difficult stories that are going to come out of this. But for me, uh, I'm just not going to, I'm, I'm not going to lose faith in my country. I'm just, it's not going to happen. But I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, they're, you're, you're really, 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 I can hear it in your voice. You're just sort of, I don't want to say desperate, but you're, you just want how, somehow want to figure out how to think about this and not lose faith in the whole system. I get that. So can, can I ask you one question, not even about this, but about yeah. in, in that opinion that came out, Clarence Thomas essentially nodded to the idea of examining and opening up gay marriage contraception. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't think that's, I mean, the, I have not studied all this, you? but apparently I don't think it, there's any chance that's going to happen. <laughs> but I think that's, I don't. that was the I don't argument think decades I don't ago think with abortion. I think that's what no, worries I, I me just, is that. I don't think it's going to happen. I think, um, I think there was a piece in the New York Times where they had other judges who said, no, 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 we're just not, not interested in that. I don't see that happening. Let's watch it. Let's watch it. But I don't think it'll happen. Yeah. I don't. You got more faith than I do, Governor. Uh, I'm going to try to steal some from you. I'm coming to Ohio. I'm coming for it. Uh uh, well, thank you for having this conversation. I want to bring yes, Andy sir. Roddick into it. Andy's gonna. This is what what what. <laughs> it's like a tennis match back and forth. Uh, I'm I'm working on this transition here. Um, uh, uh, we we are excited about the guest that we have this week. Uh, let me give a little bit of an intro here. He's a tennis legend, a major champion, number one rankings, top ten consistency, Davis Cup team leadership, and a record setting 155 mile per hour serve. This guy has many great accomplishments that were on the court, but he managed to make an even bigger impact off the court. Recognized for his community involvement with the prestigious Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award and the Arthur Ashe Leadership Award through the Andy Roddick Foundation, he has raised millions and helped more than 117,000 children and families in their mission to provide opportunities for young people to learn, thrive, and succeed. If you were paying attention and heard Andy Roddick Foundation, you probably know who we're welcoming to the show, but it's Andy Roddick. Andy, welcome. Guys, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Thanks for being on. <laughs> this is a podcast that we try to talk about sports, we talk about culture, and politics is a part of everything. Does it feel, is, tennis feels like it, it can exist in some ways outside of the political realm. Has that changed, or what's your perspective on that? Well, it, no, no, actually. I mean, I, I think... You know, sometimes uh, you got to give a, a tip of the cap to the the, uh, the the storm that you find yourself in. And luckily, I was I was in a in a sport that has kind of been on on, on the the leading uh, edge of a lot of a lot of things. Right? You have Billie Jean King going back in the day with Title IX. You have Arthur Ashe in Arthur uh, what he did for the the AIDS Foundation. You have Roger Federer who was the lead ambassador for UNICEF and now builds schools of his own. Martina Navratilova coming out in the early eighties uh, and defecting from her, from, from her country uh, at 17 years old, um, not an easy thing to do back in the day. So, uh, and that's before Andre Agassi and what he's done to rehab an entire side of, uh, of Las Vegas. So um, no tennis, tennis hasn't made a habit of distancing itself from, from tough issues. And even the players are pretty opinionated this week with the, the banning of Russian and Belarusian players at Wimbledon. So um, I, I'm pretty proud of the sport that, that uh, that I participated in. I don't know that we've ever really shied away um, from these issues. You know, uh, maybe there should have been an effort to ban Federer, at least in some of those U.S. <laughs> Opens. That uh, <laughs> would you play him four times, Andy? Is that well, right? Well, I, I, you know what? I, we should have banned him. We could have uh, figured out a way to do that, George. You know, as 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 many times as I would have wanted him banned from the U.S. Open, I would have wanted uh, him banned from Wimbledon more often. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I lost to that guy uh, a, a lot of times on a lot of big stages. And it, it's it, governor. I don't know if you ever lost a race to someone that you wanted to dislike, but they actually 
were good people and good humans and conducted themselves in a way that you couldn't even get angry about, even if you tried this brainwashing thing where you're trying to kind of uh, grab some sort of motivation from from uh, their their general being. But, you know, Roger's great. He has great hair. He speaks five languages. He can endorse your product in any of them. Um, Roger, <laughs> Roger's the best. And yes, I agree with you. He should have taken a, he should have taken a miss one of those years. Is, so is it, it, is it easier yeah. to lose to a dick? Is that what you're saying? That if somebody's a dick, it's easier just to take that loss? Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's easier with, with Roger. It's, it was a talent divide, right? It's just, he, he could do things that, uh, in this generation of the three guys with Rafa, Novak and Roger, they just, you know, what the statistics that they they put up are just stupid. So Pete Sampras, the last time I lost to Roger in a Wimbledon final, he broke Pete Sampras's all-time record in that match, which was uh, Roger got to 15. Pete Sampras was at 14. Rafa has matched Pete Sampras, uh, his Grand Slam total in one tournament at the French Open. He's won 14, you know, so it's just the, the stats these guys are putting up. It's like something you would do if you got really good at a video game when you're like 11. Those are the stats they're putting up. Hey, uh, Andy, so let's just spend a I, – I do want to get to this foundation, which you started when you were 18 years old, which is really stunning to me. Uh, but just just a couple things about – well, hell, let's start with Federer. We'll go to the, we'll go to the foundation. Um, how has this guy kept himself in, in such great shape? Somebody has told me that um, – you know, he he kind of knew when to when to push himself, when not to, how to rest. Tell tell us about that whole thing when it comes to aging. Um, he's obviously very young, but yet he's old for the sport. How how has he done it? And have you learned from him? Would you have done anything differently in terms of of how you competed? Yeah, I would have absolutely uh, done things differently. Um, you know, I was I worked my tail off start to finish. Kind of had that old school mentality. Something hurts, you just push through it. And uh, frankly, it's a, it's in a very American way to go about things, right? Push through, tough, tough, tough. And if you get hurt again, you know, just start over again. I, I would have probably taken it a little bit easier. I would have uh, chosen my spots a little bit better. Um, but in able to do that, you have to be incredibly secure with who you are, how you play, and not worried about rankings. I didn't always have that luxury. I kind of worked from a place of uh, of insecurity a little bit more than I imagine Roger does uh, and has. But it's weird because when I sit back, my my source of jealousy isn't with all the titles that that Rogers won. I would have like one of them, maybe one, maybe two more points at Wimbledon a couple of times. Um, but it's his ease of operation, right? He, it, the way that he's able to go about his business, I would you know play a you know practice match, be out there for two hours. I'd play it just like I was going to play three days later in the first round of a slam, and I'd walk by. Rogers court and he's laughing and joking and he's relaxed. That was where my jealousy came in. The, the, the way that he was able to kind of tend to his responsibilities away from the court, kind of always be in a good mood, which was incredibly annoying for the rest of us moody people. <laughs> um, you, you know, so I think that's where my source of jealousy came. I asked him a, a, a question one time and I completely didn't understand his answer. Um, I, I said, listen, most of the greats of all time, and this was probably 10 years ago, um, I said they're, they have this competitive streak where, you know, Tiger Woods will rip your head off. Michael Jordan broke uh, a, a teammate's nose in practice. You know, Lance Armstrong, before we kind of knew the way that he operated, would have, you know, put you into the ground to protect what he had. Um, I said, you don't really get defined that way. It's more this like artistic, you know, poetic, beautiful thing. I go, is it in there? Do you get mad? Or are you just really good at covering? It goes, I don't know. I always hear this thing. I, I always hear this thing where people say they hate to lose. I hate to lose. I just can't stand losing. He goes, I honestly just enjoy winning more than I hate losing. And I said, you know, fuck right off. That's the most Swiss thing I've ever heard. And I'm jealous about it. So <laughs> he just, he has this ease of operation, which is creates envy, but uh, he's, he's a great human. He's, they say, don't meet your heroes. I, I, I say, if your hero's fed, you should you should uh, look for that introduction. <laughs> do you do you see that as a as an American thing versus uh, a, you know an other country uh, a, a Swiss mentality, or is there also an evolution happening in the sport and maybe in sports in general where where there's almost a, a philosophical or at least a spiritual element that needs to uh, be taught and learned as opposed to these these old rules of uh, get angry, you hate that person, let that fuel you. <laughs> Yeah. And even things like, you know, they're, they're letting people drink water during practice. Now that's, that's cool. You know, that's, that's a, 
that's a that's a that's a nice progression. I but, think we get to thank lawsuits for that. Yeah, but I I think people are starting to realize there's a smarter way to go about it, right? It used to be eat whatever you want away from the core. We don't really care, but when you get here, you got to grind through it. It's like okay, well, well now maybe if I eat a little better, I won't have to do as much. You know, it, it, there's just a it seems like there's a balance, and also we're we're kind of ignoring the fact that you know you used to have a knee surgery and it'd take you out for six months, and now there's a scope in your back. And so th- there's been kind of technological advances across the board, which maybe put the precedent on, you know, general health. There are other ways to kind of attack the problem of wanting to be as successful as possible. Uh, Maybe without just these kind of blood and guts, you know, you have to train to the point of exhaustion. You know, you can still do that, but there are better ways for recovery. There are better ways to go into it, which kind of affects the, uh, the macro view of it a little bit. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Well, what about your coaches? You had, you had a lineup of, of coaches. Could we run through those quickly? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I kind of was, you had Brad Gilbert, right? Brad Gilbert. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So I was just listening to him on air at Wimbledon and he still likes to talk a ton. Um, but he's, uh, he was great. He's probably, you know, one of the biggest savants I've ever seen, um, to where he didn't really care much about anything but tennis. And when he talked about something outside of tennis, it was more, uh, you know, more based in kind of feelings and opinion than 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 anything that was maybe fact based. And and so, uh, but his ability to break down strategies, uh, biggest thing that he did well was he was able to kind of predict tendencies under pressure from other players. Right when it's under pressure, shade this way, cover this return, make him hit the serve that he doesn't like to hit. You know, and or there's one way to there's more than one way to lose a match. If you're going down, switch up your return adjustments, you know, so he he really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that uh, how to kind of be your own in-game coach uh, while you were out there, as opposed to just worrying about what you do well, um, you know, kind of maybe take a peek into what their tendencies might be. Um, Br- so you Brad, fired Brad him, though, about- right? You got rid of him. <laughs> well, and, yeah, and it's so interesting because I think tennis players have you know, more than anybody else has multiple coaches. I mean, golfers have, you know, have multiple coaches, but it seems like tennis players do it more often. Was Jimmy Connors a coach? Who 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 else did you have? Yeah, Jimmy Jimmy Connors was, a, he he was great, you know, and, and also there's different times that you need kind of different, different, different types people, of, different yeah. types of coaches. You know, when Jimmy came on, um, you know, I, I was at the point where I had won a slam. I'd been number one in the world. I think I'd played in three other slam finals. And I just needed someone who kind of understood those moments a little bit, understood how to navigate them. And so Jimmy was the opposite of Brad. He he was he's a he's a bit of a recluse. So he hadn't even been around the, the game in, in 15 years um, when 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 I brought him on. And so he would come out and he had these rackets that were, you know, hadn't been strung since 1991, but it was 2006 is he brought his old jump rope and it broke three, you know, three skips <laughs> in because it, he hadn't taken it out of his bag in a while. But you know, Jimmy, it, it's different when he looks you in the eyes and says, you know, he knows a thing or two about a New York crowd and says, this is the way to get them on your side, use them. And so um, it, it was it was just different at that point in my career. I didn't I knew how to play tennis. I knew how to train. I didn't need someone to babysit me to get my reps in. But um, footwork was was something that was uh, always something I had to work at very hard. My back end sucked. His back end was great. So um, it, there were just some some things that fit. And frankly, I just wanted to be able to sit at dinner and pick Jimmy's brain about these specific moments, how to navigate through uh, a two-week Grand Slam event, maybe some things that he did that I wasn't doing. And so there were kind of different different people at different points in your career that you felt, felt like you needed based on that present moment. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what are those specific types of things that he's, he's telling you? Because, yeah, at this point, you've won a Grand Slam. You're talking about small little changes to ride very specific moments that have it, it sounds like less to do with even tennis but more so the the size of that moment like what 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 else like literally it's it's hearing details about what how to ride a crowd and what a crowd is like in New York compared to what a crowd is going to be like in England yeah I, I think just some adjustments having different options coming forward a little bit more and and basically you know at that point you're you're kind of seeing the beginning of Novak and Rafa Roger is you know, his, his stretch from kind of 2004 to 2008 was maybe as good as we've seen in the game. And so frankly, I wanted someone to come in and say, you know what, screw that guy, go try to punch him in the mouth. 
you know, it, in the way that, and that's kind of the way that Jimmy operated. He made everything in the, in, into a bit of a street brawl and, you know, uh, it, it, it didn't work. But at that moment, um, I was kind of going the other way. I was so obsessed with one guy that I was kind of forgetting about the, 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 the rest of the tour. So there, there needed to be an element of focus. And, you know, we, we had a, we had a really good run, you know, I went from, you know, kind of out just outside the top 10 to, to back in contention to two, three in the world. So uh, Jimmy and I had a great one. We're, we're friends to this day. He's someone that I have uh, a ton of respect for and, and uh, Governor, you'll be happy to know that he fired me. I didn't fire him this time. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, um, there's so much to talk about in terms of tennis, but let's talk about tennis and life for a second. Because mm -hmm. it was interesting when I was reading uh, some of the background uh, in terms of talking to you, that when you would lose at Wimbledon and you'd have to come home, you know, you were here you were you know, Wimbledon, right? You didn't win. <laughs> you were so so sad that you... That, you know, you were like felt all alone and you were depressed and everything. But yet here you were at Wimbledon, you know, it's, it's as great as it can get. But you had some tremendous uh, wins, and but some tremendous defeats. And so you have this foundation for kids. Yep. And you know about the struggles that kids have today. We, we know how, how, how tough their lives can be. Tell us about how you talk to these kids about... I mean, do you talk to them more about winning or losing? Where do you think the greatest lessons come for kids on the basis of what you did and what you continue to do in your career? Well, I I, I, I have to say, I, I can't compare playing Wimbledon to a kid who's struggling with, um, you know, e e e an abusive parent or right. not getting an opportunity after school and summer programs, which we specialize in, or having a single... Uh, operating in the in the realm of a single parent and you know making ends meet, so I, I don't know that I would ever project a tennis match onto. I, I, I guess I call no, it but real. the life lessons, the life lessons, because it was as brutal for you not being able to win, right? Yeah. and you learned lessons from it. I, I think I probably learned more, frankly. Um, I, I think uh, the, the the perspective that I got from the kids when I got home from a Wimbledon final, when I was feeling sorry for myself, and then you go out there and you see what a real problem looks like. But I, I think more so, it's it's just. Uh, the, the lessons that I can kind of maybe project a little bit is I was able to find a passion, something I cared about uh, at a young age. I think that's incredibly uh, important, especially for these kids that are, are maybe lacking uh, a, a, a focus set. Um, you know, the, the, there's no, uh, there's nothing stopping you from working hard, right? You can choose to work uh, as hard as someone who, who has all the, 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 the life mechanisms in place. It's going to be a lot harder um, you know, talent uh, is universal. Opportunity, unfortunately, is not. Um, but, but I think just kind of different things from my childhood. I, I was lucky. You know, I found something at seven years old that set me up for the rest of my life and would have even if I hadn't gone pro. Right. I could have gone uh, anywhere to school. I, 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 you know, made a lifetime of friends and contacts uh, from it. So it's more drawing parallels from what I was able to find at a young age than, you know, losing a match at 27 years old in a tournament that they've never heard of. Yeah. Now, I don't want to brag, but I was a pretty good tennis player at a young age as well. <laughs> okay. Pretty darn good tennis player. No big deal. How, I was, how old were you then, Jordan? I, well, I was on, first get... doubles in high school. Thank you very much. Uh, we were not a strong team, to say the least. Uh, but what is perhaps well, that's very impressive. <laughs> I was... I was uh, I was Remember the we were the talking about golf and you were bad mouthing it, and then we got into tennis and and Alyssa Milano and you were bad mouthing that. Now I find out you were number you were. <laughs> I am a lifelong tennis fan, and I, I mean, will tell you this: that my uh, for six years of my life, I was a ball boy in. Ca I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, home to the US oh, for the Nationals. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Andy. This and now is you're a ball, and now you're a ball buster. I'm a ball you go. That's right. Thank you, Governor. Very clever. Well done. What is that? The old uh, is that the, that's the old the old Stowe Stadium there in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I think you got it. Stowe wow. Stadium, Kalamazoo. That's it, right. It's it's home to the 1618th championship. My yep. family is a bit obsessed. My dad's volunteered for years. He has the the that's famous green jacket for volunteers. He gives cool. it up every year. He 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 uh, headed the transportation there, and I used to be a ball boy there. And so, if you're a ball boy there, it means all summer or. I prepped for it, and then for a week and a half, uh, the kids who aren't good enough at tennis uh, help and watch <laughs> the kids who are. And so I guess I want to know, you came in there. It's 
it's it's sort of the place to be for if you're uh, an American junior, sixteens uh, and eighteens. Uh, wh- how did how did you find Kalamazoo, and how important were the ball runners to your experience becoming a true champion? <laughs> well, I actually I actually came on the, on this uh, show not to talk about anything to do with tennis or life or politics or anything else. It was more just to thank you for setting me on the right course for my career. You're welcome, Andy. Um, but it, it, no, in all seriousness, Kalamazoo is just like this weird. It's this weird tournament where for the first time you actually feel this like pressure set, right? And I came in one year. So my brother played uh, before me, was a good player, made, I think he might have made the finals at Kalamazoo. Um, but one time, uh, this is probably four or five years before I got there, he, he had a bit of a temper on him, um, fired a ball, what was meant to go at the backstop, right? And you know how like the stands are right above it? Mm-hmm. Hits a little girl in the stands, kind of, he got, he got elevated on him. Hits the girl. She starts crying. Um, probably 10-year-old girl. Uh, he then, uh, against kind of anyone's better judgment, like two or three points later, was like, can someone shut that girl up? Right? And so I remember going to Kalamazoo, and I was the number one seed. And you, it's a big deal, right, when you're a junior. You get to play on the center court at Stowe Stadium. And there's actually, like, people there for the first time ever. And we have, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary ball kids such as yourself. And... I remember them introing me on center court. I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm the number one seed, number one in the country. And they start booing me. It was the most heartbreaking thing of all time. I'm like, my damn brother hit that girl. That's what it is. <laughs> that's hard to that's hard to overcome. I will, I yeah. will say that's that's yeah. really setting you in a hole. <laughs> yeah, it was. Jordan, this not, is not a, a great revelation. Start. I mean, this is really <laughs> impressive. I didn't know you were that good of an athlete. I know you were a great <laughs> swing dancer, but I didn't know. Are you, you are you could, talking to me or Jordan? I'm talking to Jordan. I mean, oh, okay. I knew Roddick. I knew you were a pretty good tennis player. If you could just happen all the time, the governor's know? talking about skill sets <laughs> in tennis, oh, man, and it's confusing. Is he talking to Jordan? Is he talking to Andy Roddick? Oh, it just, could be anybody. To, it would be. It would be. Maybe it was to neither of you. You know, over here, <laughs> Andy. Um, so let's. I mean, we've got so much to talk about in terms of, of Rafa and, and uh, Djokovic. And yeah. let's talk about the women's game a little bit. And uh, Osaka, uh, a little bit about Serena. Do you think, I know she's trying to, to come back and play. How do you think that goes? And, um, you know, I think Osaka's had a, a tough time, right? I mean, it's it's the, the mental side of this entire sport, which is, well, you, you talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean... It- Listen, I think I, I think it's there's a timely conversation because I think a lot of people are going through a lot of things. And I I respect uh, I respect Naomi for kind of coming out and talking about it. Um, I, I do think there's probably a fine line between um, I, I don't think you can say, you know, I, I, I don't want to do press, but then show up kind of at the opening of, of, of a bunch of different things and going to award shows. And I think if you want to be out front and, you know, obviously she's she's very well compensated uh, for, for that. But, uh, you know, Naomi now, I think it's more, uh, she took a bunch of time off last year and I just, I just don't think she's gotten started again. You know, in, in this game, you need reps, you need to be able to play tournaments. You can practice as much as you want, but you know, I, I'm sure there was a lot of prep for, uh, primary debates, but until you actually get on that stage, it's not the same thing, right? You, you, you kind of have to find a little bit of a rhythm. Um, but listen, Naomi's, uh, a, a very, Bright young woman. Um, I, I think she would be the first to tell you she has a lot to learn. Um, she said publicly she has some regrets about what happened at the French Open last year, where she wrote an Instagram post kind of saying it before she actually talked to the the uh, the tournament directors. I think uh, agency probably has a little bit to do with that. Um, but she's obviously one of the really exciting prospects. Uh, Coco Golf is is an, a rock star of a human and a, a great representative for the sport of tennis. Um, you know, Iga Swiatek, uh, she's from Poland, just won the French Open. I don't know about Serena. I, I just don't know. Um, we haven't seen her uh, in a year. And the last time we saw her, she kind of limped off of off of Wimbledon center court. Um, you know, so we literally she's played two doubles matches in a small event in Eastbourne the week before Wimbledon. I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm happy to see her back. I'm happy to see her try. Uh, you know, if anyone can kind of pull a rabbit out of that hat, it's uh, it's Serena. I don't know that she could win at the other slams, but Wimbledon, I think, is definitely uh, definitely gives her the best chance uh, at this point in her career. Talk to me about lifestyle, uh, being a professional tennis player. You know, we're talking a little bit about mental health and the choices yeah. you have to make about how forward-facing you are. Uh, but 
stand-up comedians travel the world, and it is lonely. You're, yeah. you know, like you're you're alone on a stage. Uh, you perform, and then you go back to your La Quinta at night, and you're in Bloomington for the next four days, thinking about your mistakes or the things that worked. Uh, it could be a sad existence. Uh, I don't want to make this all about me, but boy, Bloomington <laughs> in February, it's not where you want to be. Um, uh, I'm sure you were not necessarily staying at La Quinta's uh, in Barcelona, but but you're traveling all over the place. How, how solo is the experience of, of travel when you're a professional tennis player? And what, what are those days like? How do you stay sane? Um, well, I, I want to preface anything to do with, listen, we played a game for a living and we, we, get, we, we got paid well for it. So mm-hmm. let's put that on, on the side. And I'm extremely aware of uh, the gift that is being able to play a, a, a game you like and love uh, for a living. Yeah. And um, to be, yeah, and to be clear, yeah. I give you zero credibility. Yeah. I have, I, I, I don't, there's no credit going towards <laughs> okay. you in any kind of a way. It's a Good. child's game. You're lucky Good. you have biceps. That's Good. it. The real heroes are the stand-up <laughs> comedians That's right. who, 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 who give their all to perform yes. in Bloomington, Indiana yes. for four days. So yes, yes. now th- that's out. It's clear. We all understand. Uh, I, but I, you know, that being said, um, I, and I think we all celebrate your journey, Jordan. Um, Thank, but, you. Thank you, Andy. But I think, um, you know, it, it, the, the reality is it's, it's, it's 45 weeks on the road a year. You're in a different place that, you know, uh, you, you don't really understand what's on TV. Uh, you're 17, 18 years old. You start uh, at a time where most people are kind of uh, stressed out about uh, getting used to college. Um, you know, and especially for uh, on the women's side, sometimes it starts uh, even younger. Um, you, you know, so you're going to a bunch of places, you're pretty much only around adults, your coach, your training staff, and or the people that want to kick your ass um, in, in your job. So it, it is it is a tough existence. Um, I think there are a lot of eyeballs on it. It's you can't really lean on on your teammates. Um, you know, and it, it's a global sport. You know, I always get a kick out of the uh, when you hear the NFL guys say, oh, we got to go West Coast. That time change is going to be brutal. I'm like, try Memphis on a Saturday and Dubai on a Tuesday. That's a, that, that, that's a tough one also. So um, it, it's weird because it's, it's hard, but it's also the ability to see different cultures and process things differently and see how, you know, different countries operate and what you like and what you don't like. Uh, it, it's, it's such a, it, all factors in it, such a net gift to be able to experience that at a young age, but it is really hard to kind of deal with all that simultaneously and then go out and have to kind of be one of the best performers in your arena uh, in the world. Who are your friends? Are you are you making friends with competitors? Or I I, I've never had a friend. Yeah, I knew one. it. I yeah. knew it. Yeah, that, that um, checks out. Yeah, no, well, your your friend is your friend is 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 Marty Fish, right? And yeah, it's a good. That's call. a really really interesting story about Marty. Do you want to talk talk a little bit about him? And you know, I know he's yeah. turned into a fabulous golfer, right? Yes. And it's a great story. Uh, in fact, I think there's a. A, a movie about his life. I mean, yeah. he's a pal of yours. Is that right? Yeah. He's one of my best. Friends. We're almost more like brothers. Cause we'll, we'll fight and be mad at each other. It's not just good going all the time, but um, Marty fish, I, the, the, the Netflix documentary you're referencing is a series called untold. Um, and this is called breaking point. And so Marty um, in 2012, I, I kind of, I guess I lived most of our careers as the, the number one American. And, you know, Marty kind of switched off with James Blake, a couple of the guys for that, that second spot, but really kind of committed late in his career. I, I, he would probably say that he was probably undisciplined early in his career, full of talent, all the moxie he wanted, but um, probably carried a few out there and didn't do kind of what the best in the world were trying to do. Completely remedied that, which you don't really see in an individual sport. People either understand the, 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 the kind of set of disciplines that you need to have or they don't. Um, he kind of found his groove late in his career for a couple of years, really worked hard. Um, but then developed a bit of an anxiety disorder, um, which which led to him not taking the court in a U.S. Open uh, early in the second week against a guy uh, named Roger Federer. Um, it, it was a weird thing between us because we were simultaneously competitors and best friends. Marty lived at our house during high school um, so that he could be kind of closer to, to uh, our, uh, our our training. Um, and, and he kind of talked very openly um, and when we did this documentary, it was kind of before the Osaka's and the Simone Biles and everyone kind of coming out and making it uh, more of a mainstream talking point. Um, we shot this documentary, I think it was five years ago, um, and it just came out, uh, you know, last year, actually about a year ago at, during the U.S. Open. So um, Marty's just had an incredible journey. Um, he's become a, a very, very uh, great, a good spokesperson 
for uh, kind of mental health and along with people like Michael Phelps also uh, fascinating to listen to him and his stance on a, on a bunch of these issues. He certainly doesn't, doesn't suffer fools or sugarcoat um, any of this. Um, but Marty's a great, great friend of mine. That's uh, some great research governor and uh, you know, be remiss. It was probably me, Marty and James Blake that would, that would bum around uh, the most on tour. It's like high school again, right? You gravitate towards the people that are into what you're into and, you know, believe it or not, the guys from France don't really care what happened in the SEC title game. So you kind of gravitate towards the guys who uh, who did. <laughs> and he's playing golf now, right? Isn't he on like the celebrity golf tour or something like that? Yeah, he's he's a great player. He's he's you know he, Marty's Marty's like obnoxiously good at whatever he does. He goes to yeah. Shea Stadium, takes batting practice, hits five homers. He's a plus four, plus five in golf. Um, he, he kind of supplements his income now by by beating up on the on the rest of us husbands. <laughs> we'll be right back. And now back to the show. We we did a podcast. We, we were talking to Mayim Bialik, um, uh, and uh, she was talking a little bit about celebrity becoming famous uh, when you're young. And I think tennis, obviously, obviously, you you finding success so early, and so many people in the sport of tennis. Do you find there's that that solidifying of personality that happens with tennis uh, stardom that happens perhaps in the Hollywood world? Like the, there's sadly they say a lot of development tends to stop when people get that that fame and that shine early on. Does that happen in tennis? Uh, have you noticed that at all? Are you it, broken? I <laughs> uh, not. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, pay the bill for all those years. Um, I don't know. I think I think the one difference in tennis is you can't you can't stray too far from focus, right? I, it's not as if you go audition and then you get something and then you're famous a year later. Uh, tennis is like you start the process when you're six or seven years old. You work not knowing what what is going to happen. And I always use the example that it, there's always kind of this this the, these checkpoints where no matter how great you were two weeks ago, I, I remember I, I won the U.S. Open. Um, everything happens there. All of a sudden you kind of become a household name. And then two weeks later, my life is literally, I'm sitting in a room alone in Slovakia. We have to go play a a relegation tie and we're in a stadium of 1200 people. And I go out and lose my first match to a guy ranked 70 in the world because I'm still, you know, reminiscing about New York. So there's always that next thing where someone wants to come out and kind of punch you in the mouth. And I don't know if that's the same, um, but also as soon as you get, uh, a little bit far away from focus and tennis, there's not really an off season that kind of sucks, but it also doesn't allow you to spend five months celebrating the past season successes, right? You kind of have to stay in the moment uh, a little bit. So for me, it was always, listen, I can, I can live a normal life. I can make mistakes, but like get a driver, you know, don't pay, pay for that investment. If you're going to go out and have a beer, just get the simple parts, right. Control the controllables. Um, so I, I don't know that it's as extreme as, as, as maybe you would find in Hollywood or, or frankly, as young as you might see in Hollywood. So uh, Andy, you can't predict the future, but it looks like Djokovic has a lot of gas left in the tank. Federer looks like not so much. <laughs> and Nadal, every, you know, the more he complains, the more he wins. I mean, what, <laughs> what, uh, what do you think is going gonna, is gonna to happen here? And then who do we see coming up? that can break this slam record. I mean, this is just really remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'll answer the second question first. I don't think anyone comes like we're spoiled now. I mean, it, 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 like winning 20 slams isn't, isn't like a real thing. That's not something that happens in modern day tennis. And now we have three guys that, that did it. I don't know that this is the new normal. I, I think you're going to kind of go back to, you know, the days where you're going to see, you know, Edberg with six and McEnroe with seven and Connors with eight and, you know, Agassi with eight. And you, you have these iconic names from yesteryear. Becker had, you know, I think he had six also where you, you spread the love a little bit more and they, they, they kind of weren't as greedy as this crew. Um, but Novak, it, it's, it's a weird thing because if you, if you cruise back to the, the U S open in 2020, Novak was in full flight, just, killing people it looked like he was kind of going to kind of run away with this this all-time record he slaps the ball it's the most unlucky thing ever because i did five things that were angrier every match but it hits a lady in the throat she goes down and he's out of the tournament okay someone else wins it then australia happens this year with uh the covid the, the, fact, the, yeah. the, the vaccine drama and it looks like he as of now won't be able to come to new york either and, and play in the u.s open so we didn't see this wrench when we were trying to predict it in 2019 and he's sticking to it. He's, he's, he's kind of not going to get vaccinated. So I don't know how to predict that. I don't know how to predict health. 
I was one of the guys who said there's no way Rafa can play as hard and as 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 physical as he does and last past 30. So dummy me, he's still winning uh, slams this year. He's at 22 now. Um, and also, you know, Novak won't be there. I, I, I hate to say this because he's one of my favorites, but I don't see how Roger gets back into full flight after what he's gone through with multiple knee surgeries at 40 years old. I think he's probably going to stick at 20, um, you know, and, and we'll see how it plays out with Novak. When you're deported from Australia, they have to approve you coming back. Otherwise, you have, you're like kicked out of the country for a couple of years. So we don't know if he's going to be able to play the next two slams. So I don't know how to predict this mess. It's uh, it's certainly weird when when real life kind of infringes on our little our little tennis bubble. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's crazy what Rafa's doing uh, right now with maybe like one foot and and you know limping to fourteen Roland Garros titles. It's just it's just crazy. Yeah, uh, tennis is. It can be a tough sport to get into. It's an expensive sport, yep. uh, inaccessible for folks who don't have a lot of money. Um, uh, I, I know a lot of kids, the ability to go down to Florida, the ability to travel, it's tough. I'm wondering if um, if that affected or informed the philanthropy that you you got into and got into so so quickly and so early. Yeah, it's not what we do isn't it's 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 based in pretty intense education as opposed to it's not a tennis camp at all. Um, but it, you know, you know, I, it, it's weird because I hear this narrative all the time. Um, you know, my my parents, I listen, by the time I came along, they were they were fine. And uh, my dad, you know, ran a place that did oil changes. But, you know, my parents are farmers from Wisconsin. You know, they were they were they lived in a, a trailer when when they got married for many, many years. You know, you look at where Venus and Serena came from in Compton, uh, Andre Agassi's dad. Uh, was an Iranian boxer who worked the door at Caesar's Palace. Um, you you look at the influx of talent uh, from places like Russia and Serbia and these places that aren't, you know, a lot of them, are, these these kids didn't grow up affluent and they're the best players in the world. So it actually can be done. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's not, a, you're, you're not predisposed to not being able to succeed in tennis uh, just because of, of your circumstances uh, when you're a kid that that's been proven wrong uh, many times that we talked about Jimmy Connors raised by a single mother was, you know, the, the, the wrong side of St. Louis and was, was a bruiser, you know, single so what, parent home. What, what do you think it is? Is it, is it, what is miss misguided with that perspective? I, is it because functionally to get to that kind of level, is it the privilege of, and perhaps forgive me if that's a loaded term, uh, but of, of time or resources, or is it just focus? I mean, the, the fact that, because you went down to Florida very early on, correct? Because like where you can play and where you can work with the coach, does that need to happen to have access to uh, many hours of, of uh, tennis and a, and a decent coach early on? Is that sort of what you need to get over that hump? I think, I think the decent coach part is, is something I I like, like anything else when you're in uh, youth sports, youth activities, youth education, you need someone to take an interest. You need a mentor. You need someone who's not scared to ask questions that they don't know the answers to, Um, you know, so perfect. What we saw with, with the movie King Richard, I'm not sure if you saw it. So Richard Williams knew that he had this talent, wasn't quite sure what to do with it and went on a mission to hunt down the best brains that, he could possibly find to take an interest in in his two girls. And, you know, that story, I'm glad it finally got told because I think we all knew it in the back of our minds. But, you know, when uh, the second best player in your family has five Wimbledon titles, it's pretty crazy. You know what, though, Andy, you know, this is really to what Jordan was asking you. I I watched the movie. I thought it was uh, really remarkable. A lot about Serena, not, not, you know, it was was like what they were able to do. And Jordan, to me... um, what what it seems like is in tennis or in golf or in baseball or whatever, if you can serve the ball like Andy did at one time, I guess 150 miles an hour, if you can volley, if you can rush the net, somebody's going to find you if you don't if you don't quit. I mean, it's like in golf. I mean, when you're shooting, you know, six under par, somebody's going to notice. When you're a baseball player and you can throw it. 97 miles an hour and you're 18 years old, somebody's going to see it. You just can't quit. I mean, I don't think you can quit in sports. I don't think you can quit in comedy. I can tell you, you don't quit in politics. You just, you just have to see it and you just have to keep going and going and going. And I think you need somebody uh, who can encourage you. 
But I think if you've got that, the focus, the drive, the sense that this is a gift, am I, am I, am I hitting on something here, Andy, that makes sense? You will be discovered. It's well, a little different than maybe singing, you know, where there's so many people that have great voices. But in this stuff, there's a limited number of, could, of what could do what Andy Roddick did in his life. I mean, there just aren't many people well, like that. Sports is, it's almost the, uh, it's almost the, the fairest thing out there, right? You can either play or you can't. Um, I do think opportunity has to find you somehow, some way uh, at a a certain time. And I'm sure there are many great players who didn't have the tools. So phenoms at 10, at 15, maybe it just didn't happen. But I I will say, I don't think it's coincidental that the icons of of our sport, right? Uh, The Williamses, Connors, Agassi, uh, the grit that it takes them right to find out and they have had a tougher by the time they arrive at that moment where they do have the supports i think it's a distinct advantage that they've had to fight through something because you know largely uh especially in in the states there's this cushion of a full ride to college so my my fail safe was i was going to go to the university of georgia uh look at cute girls and be a star on the tennis team for four years versus if novak doesn't make it out of serbia you know, the, the options are, aren't as as obvious, right? The, the insurance policy isn't quite as good in the other countries. And frankly, that's probably why they've been tougher than us, you know, for the last 20, 25 years. Um, now, we have every opportunity. Some take advantage, some don't. But um, when you are kind of playing to get out of a place or create a generational change uh, in your family, I think it takes on a maybe a different mentality. If you can find that point of support, and, and success, I think it really does serve you well. And that's a big if, because we don't hear the cautionary tales that 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 are on the other side of that argument, but um, there is some benefit to it. Let me, let me just add. Yeah, but George, wait, wait, but why, why, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Why, why wasn't, why weren't I great at te- tennis? I'm, ass- <laughs> I'm assuming it has to do something with just not maybe being athletic and, 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 and talent. No, yeah, you know, I, I want to take, come I on, George. I don't me, know. I'm going to get another opinion. This. Thank <laughs> you for that, but uh, let, I'm, I'm going to check around on that. Let, let me, let me kind of bring it in for a second to politics. Okay. I grew up in Pittsburgh. My father carried mail on his back. His father was a coal miner, died a black lung. My mother's mother couldn't speak English. I moved to Ohio and I go to school at Ohio state. I graduate. I, I, I just start looking for a job. I luck out. I get a job in the legislature, and I watch these guys, and I say, I think I could be one of them. So I just quit everything, and I started running for the for the state senate. Jordan, it, I spent two and a half years at this. It was about two and a half. And all I did was go out and knock on doors, and I had nobody. Nobody was around me. But over time, the harder I worked, the more... I could find people who said, hey, I can help you a little bit here. And I went, I I can't even describe to you guys what it was like to be out there every day, all year long, knocking on people's doors, trying to convince them that they needed to be for me. And And, you know, what happened was it just built a team. And I think it's similar in many other places where, remember Mark Cuban, how he started he told us when he was in high school and he got involved in that business club and, you know, he had a lot of ups and downs, but he made it intensity, focus, never say die, having a dream. It probably doesn't work for everybody because it takes, you just got to dig down so deep and not ever, you just can't give up. And it's, but people can rise. They can rise from wherever they are if they have the talent and, People have talents in different ways, though. You don't want to say, well, this guy's got this talent, so he's better than this person over here. No, it's just taking advantage of the talent that the good Lord has given you. That's kind of the way I look at at things. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, yes. I mean, I, I think to get to a certain level of success, you have to have those qualities. I I, I see a lot of kids in our program that I, I honestly question where they would go, what they would do, if not for supports given, um, you know, so I, I think to a certain extent, but um, I, I don't think it's as simple as having that drive, that talent, because I think there are a lot of people who have that and just just don't know where to go. You ended up at o- Ohio State University. Yeah. You saw your net, you were exposed. There are a lot of people that don't get to that step. 
No. Um, you know, so I, I, I think to a certain point, I agree with all of the things you said, but I don't know that everyone has that opportunity to even get to the first part of, of, of where your story started, right? Hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting reading about uh, your foundation, Andy, because correct me if I'm wrong, one of the big ideas is it's exposure. Let let kids be exposed to a bunch of different things so that they can't like right that it's it is a mix. It's a mix of of the talent that you have, but what exposure, what facilities do you have to cultivate that talent? And are you able to through hard work, through a little bit of luck, through a little bit of kismet, get people who can help craft and point that energy in the the right direction? Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And um, you know, it's based on uh, you know, we we've really I kind of started the idea for our direct service with a friend of mine named Jeff Lau, who uh, served at West Point, uh, served overseas in Afghanistan, went to Harvard Business School, way smarter than me, but we had different routes, right? One was very formal education. Mine was like, you know, trying to figure out how to get home after a night out in Dusseldorf, Germany at 17, right? Like, so there's just different things that kind of how we got to uh, a similar spot. And what were the important things about that? You know, exposure, life skills, seeing it. Do you have to see it to believe it? And so all of those things went into a curriculum that, um, you know, we ended up winning, uh, you know, the best out of school time program in the country uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but one of the things that that was an, maybe an unintended consequence, which should have been more strategic uh, by us, um, we just kind of got lucky because our focus was was entirely child centric when putting our direct service programs together. Um, 90% of our, our families are from single parent homes. And so for that parent not to have to make that decision between leaving work at, at two o'clock to pick their kid up from three to kind of erase those, uh, you know, idle hours from three to six, that changes the dynamic of an entire family. That changes potentially the course of an entire family when a parent can has the option of working three or four extra hours a day times five days a week. Uh, that makes a huge difference, right? And, and just feeling safe, content, knowing your kid is not only safe, but is is actually getting a value add is a huge deal. So these types of programs, they, they do affect the whole family. And maybe that's maybe what I was referring to with, with, with Governor Kasich, someone giving the the parent a, yeah. a, a damn break. It takes a village. It takes a village. Well, hell yeah, yes. That's, and, that's and, right. it, and it takes money to support your kid and give them every opportunity. So I, I think it goes both ways, but we're, we're pretty happy with, with being able to serve, you know, 55,000 kids a day in, in the Austin area and through, through various programs and, and outlets um, during the most important hours, right? The summer learning loss where you, you, you kind of backslide 30%. Um, the differences between the kids who were, you know, considered affluent and the kid, I, I don't think it's as much of the actual school system. I think it's the supports outside of, you know, the, 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 the tough hours after school and in the summer while having a single parent that needs to make a living. Let's, let's talk about the mind for a second. I want to go back to that really for a second here. Um, you, Andy, you know, you're, you're there, it's, you're in your, you know, fourth set, you're, you got a, the you, you got the rally going back and forth. You got to keep hitting it over that net. I once talked to Michael Red, played in the NBA. I said, Michael, when people miss, I mean, how do they how do they not think about missing? He said, Well, John, we don't think about missing because we expect to make every shot, and I guess because they practice so much. So you had to control your mind, and this is not just about tennis, right? It's the ability to visualize to visualize something good. And to get yourself in a position of where you could make that good happen. I mean, when we watch this stuff on TV, Jordan, I'm sure it's the same way. We're like, wow, how can these, how can they perform at this level? What, what can you tell us about the mind and what can we learn from your experience for our own experience? Yeah, I, I admire the athletes. Uh, you, you mentioned Michael Ray, who has this expectation that every shot's going to go in. I don't know that I ever had that. Um, I, I'd say I just want to be a little bit, you know, I, I, Andre uh, Agassi told me something, and I, I think the, the smartest people I've ever met are to take, they're able to take very uh, difficult topics and kind of put them into very simple terms. And he said, dude, what, what other job on earth do you only have to be better than one person a day? Like get over yourself. You know, it was, it was actually a great, it was a, uh, it was a great thing. But for me, it was, I, I think the thing that I was best at was just getting on with work right? Like you have this disappointing end of a set. What are your options, right? You either sulk on a changeover and let it affect the rest of your day, or you somehow get it in you and, and fight through your own, 
you know, I don't want to say anguish, that's a little melodramatic, but anger, uh, sadness, and and kind of get on with it. You know, after I lost that 08, uh, 09 Wimbledon final, I was, I was pretty heartbroken. And, you know, um, but the option I'm sitting at home four days later, it's like, well, today's as good as any to kind of get back on the horse and get back to work and give yourself an opportunity the next time it comes around. Um, you know, so, but tennis is weird. It's, it's, you know, you kind of create this ritual set of your 30 seconds between points, you go, you bounce the ball the same, and you're almost trying to send it into autopilot and, and avoid kind of the uh, projection of what's going to happen in an hour. It's, it's almost, uh, I think the genius of tennis and Rafa probably does this better than anyone we've ever seen is staying in the moment. You know, you always hear one point at a time, but there's a reason you always hear one point at a time, right? Go through your rituals and all of a sudden, five hours later, you're still going through that, that same 30 second ritual, hoping for a result. Do you carry on that, uh, that mentality into life beyond tennis? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I get as stressed because, uh, you know, sending an email or having a work call or anything else, it's not as if you're under the gun, right? It's not as if you're starting at one o'clock and your life could be defined and or ruined in the next, you know, and that's melodramatic too, but in the next three hours, I don't know that there's that 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 stress set and, and, and anything else I do now, it's more of kind of a, a long burn. Um, but I, I think so. I, I think there's value of having uh, to perform under the lights and kind of, uh, you know, feel like you're, you're nervous and you're going to, you know, vomit before match, but then go out and actually deliver and, 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 and do it. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of value of that. I think there's probably some parallels, uh, but also there, there are behaviors that have to be learned because the existence as a, as a tennis player is a pretty, pretty selfish existence, right? You have this team of people that kind of rotate around you. You're the center of the universe inside of your own bubble uh, for your results, your titles, your benefit. Um, you know, so I, I think anything I've done after tennis has been a real lesson in that that's not real life. You know, it needs to be a two-way street in, in, in whatever you do. And there is a give and take maybe more so than, you know, us brats who've been trained uh, since, since we're seven or eight years old to kind of uh, be singularly focused on ourselves. Your kids, uh, how do they see you and do they feel pressure? I mean, their dad was, think about this, think about this, Andy, for a second. Ready for this? Number one in the world. I mean, think. I mean, is, I mean, what? What do you tell your kids? I mean, what are they're going to say? Dad, you are number one in the world. I mean, what am I supposed to do? What, I, tell, uh, Dad, how do they? I, I got, I got, I got second in the piano recital. Yeah, well, I was number one in the world. The world. Yeah, it was a. I, I, I I'm pretty honest. I say it was a glorious cup of coffee before this guy named Roger came along. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it's weird because our, our kids, um, we don't, my wife doesn't have anything. She is on TV shows. She doesn't have anything from work in our house. I don't have any trophies in our house. The, this, the, like the four that people would want to see are like tucked away in a corner of uh they of, know Andy of my, you, can't, well, they, you well, can't hide who Andy well, Roddick okay. is. You no, can't no, hide it. Sorry, but, buddy. No, but to my, to my point, like COVID happens, it's this, you know, maybe the dumbest thing ever virtual school for four-year-olds doesn't make any sense. I've, our son is six, our daughter's four. So my son goes to kindergarten this year and he starts to kind of pick up on things a little bit and ask questions. And I, I don't know that he fully understood. I think when I said I, I was, you know, a, a, a pro tennis player, I think he thought like I, I taught tennis right. um, somewhere. And so I think he kind of has a full understanding now, but because I was number one in the world and he understands that now he tends to think I was a lot better. I tell him like, I was like the worst number one that it ever existed. I'm not, you know, so we'll see someone on TV and he's like, Oh, you know, Federer, you're that, that guy's number one. That's what you were. I'm like, yeah, not that there's a difference. There's, there's, there's context that that's needed, but I guess he thinks it's pretty cool. They don't really understand it. They didn't grow up seeing it. Um, they haven't played it. I don't care if they play it. Um, so I don't, I don't think that pressure set uh, has existed uh, to this point, but I don't think we're naive to the fact that it might exist, exist in maybe some awkward ways uh, along the way. But, you know, we're, we're a conversation away from uh, maybe them having a better understanding of it. <laughs> well, Andy, it's been a real honor to talk to, quote, the worst number one that's ever existed. Uh, <laughs> um, to join the Andy Roddick Foundation family and learn more about the different ways to support the ARF family, go to arfoundation.org. Andy, it's been a true treat. Hey, I appreciate you guys. I love this podcast. I love what you guys are doing. I love that you can actually converse about things that are uh, a little bit more difficult. I think this this type of show is 
is uh, is what's needed. And I, uh, I salute you guys. Well done. You know, and Andy, just so you know, when Jordan and I got into a lot of discussions about guns, that's how they, they had a breakthrough in Washington and finally got the, the first gun reform through in 30 or 40 years. And it, we, Jordan and I are taking all the credit for that, right, yeah, Jordan? That's right. Well, yes, thank you for all your work in that and what you do with these kids. I, I tell you, I, it's so wonderful that you would have taken the time uh, with all your success to say, nope, I'm going to help somebody else, and you've been doing it forever. So the best to you, the right. best to you, sir. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.